So welcome, um, welcome to Ecclesia, welcome to uh, our Sunday fellowship and we are continuing in a series um, which is uh, entitled Jesus, Humanity's Only Hope and it's important to kind of engage with that title today, especially as I, um, what we go through here as um, we may very well be looking for so many different things um, in different places. And uh, today I guess we want to kind of see maybe even more clearly than maybe we have been before how Jesus is humanity's only hope. But the struggles we have with that, the struggles we have with that. So I want to jump into the text and we have a text today in um, Luke 7 verses 18 down to 35. We have three clear sections and I want to take time to go through each section and kind of expound what's happening there but they're all obviously related they're all kind of the, around the same theme of Jesus John the Baptist and the people the problems that people have with the style of ministry that both these people you know both Jesus and John present us with and why people then make that a stumbling block to the gospel you know so Bear with me as I kind of go through it, and hopefully you will gain um, some really great insight from it. So let me read. I'm going to start um, in the first section, verses 18 to 23. Then I want to pray, and then we kind of jump in and start um, seeing what the text is saying to us. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, so, um, but do follow in whatever translation you have, and we'll have the text up here as well, just in case you don't have um, a text to hand. So let me start. <clears throat> the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they, had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one? Who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news Preach to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended in me. This is the word of God. Now, the teacher in me, again, can't resist the opportunity to think, to kind of add something to maybe our, our spiritual vocabulary, our discipleship vocabulary of things to look forward to, things that we know that happen, um, but maybe don't have quite a word for it. Um, but today I want to start off and use this opportunity to, to talk about what we know in the Word of God as a theodicy. A theodicy. It's a term given to the problem that people have with the gospel because of evil. The presence of evil in the world. And if you've um, maybe have heard any famous 
um, atheists and talk about some of the issues that they have with um, Christianity and religion as a whole. It's the whole idea of um, the profession of a really great God, um, but yet there's evil in the world. So the, 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 I guess you could say the style of apologetics, the, the, um, the people who respond to it, respond to it with what they call a theodicy, a God vindication. Um, let me give you a Wikipedia um, description of it. In the philosophy of religion, a theodicy meaning vindication of God in Greek is an argument that attempts to resolve the problem of evil that arises when omnipotence, omnibenevolence, that is God's um, all-surpassing goodness and his omniscience, his knowledge of everything, are all simultaneously ascribed to God. So, you know, so it's not that God is... All-powerful, he can deal with all problems. He's omnibenevolent. He's all good. In that sense, he really is the best of all um, when you think of goodness. But he's also omniscient in that sense that nothing escapes him. No evil escapes him. So all these things have been put into conflict with one another. And they said, well, a powerful God who is good and at the same time knows all things, yet I see people struggle. And it's terrible. It's difficult. And Jesus, I guess, you know, people tend to look beyond Jesus for a, as a solution for this because of these issues. Religion is counted out. I think John, as we see in the text, has a similar issue with Jesus. You know? When we think about a Messiah, when we think about leadership, what kind of leadership we want to see today, what's our own vision of a Messiah? What's our own vision of someone who we believe will be the answer to a world in so much pain and so much struggles? John has his doubts about Jesus. So it is possible that we also have our own hang-ups with Christianity. And I think it's important that we kind of deal with that as the text allows us to deal with that issue even today. So let's kind of look at the first um, few verses, 18 to 23. Blessed is the one who is not offended in me. And that's looking at the fact that that directly relates, uh, uh, again, to what John was saying. So anyway, Luke's account of this segment differs from Matthew. If you look over to Matthew 11... We have the same, um, the same um, situation being outlined. John sending two of his um, disciples to, or a, a, maybe even a contingent of his disciples, to Jesus to ask a question. Um, but the difference with Luke's account, Luke 1 tends to be a little bit more fleshed out, and it adds the detail of John being imprisoned, which um, can be important in understanding the reason why John is asking this question. You know, so Matthew doesn't, doesn't include John's imprisonment. But Luke includes it because I believe, to some extent, it, it highlights the issue that why is he asking this question in the first place? And I think it speaks to that. You know, so when you're imprisoned by a sinful man, so obviously 
John had his issues with, with the Herod of the time who was ruling and obviously had said the right thing about his marriage not being legal, not being um, sanctioned by God, and as a result of it, got himself thrown into prison. You're, you're, you're there in prison by a sinful man. You're in the right, even by Jewish law. But this man, obviously, by virtue of his power, has decided to put you in prison. You know, and you have announced that the kingdom of God has arrived in the person of Jesus. So you're now, as it were, pointing the way and saying, Jesus has come. The Messiah has come. The king and the anointed one. Now you can become confused and even frustrated that things have not turned out the way you're expected. You've announced the Messiah has come. Maybe a year has passed. You're in prison. And now you're looking out on the world and saying, hmm, What's happening? John is probably thinking in the realm of the Messiah who would reinstate a sovereign Israel by becoming its king. And all those he has baptized, so remember he's been baptizing people into this new Israel, this new covenant. And that would be those people that would make up this new kingdom. These will be the chief people in this new kingdom. Those who he baptized, and Jesus as its Messiah. The kingdom has come, but yet, people are struggling. People are in prison. <clears throat> in order to get this picture of what is happening in the minds of many first century Jews like John, you have to picture a new exodus. So, we went to the beginning about what the significance of John's ministry, and, and it's important that we understand John's ministry. And so what we have is a new exodus. And this is one of the things that Isaiah prophesied, a new exodus, so a new people of God, a new remnant of God's people coming, as it were, and making a new nation. In other words, the abandonment of the old Israel and the old covenant, but people now being born into a new covenant, and a new exodus where they will now reform as a new Israel, aside from the one that obviously now has become corrupt. That's what John is, is prepared the way for, this new way of being with God. So as the old Israel came out of um, an Egypt, so as it were, the, the, the new Egypt is the old Israel. And so these people need to come out of the corrupt Egypt that is persecuting the righteous and come and become part of this new, um, new Israel that has, been, that has been oppressed by those, obviously, in this new Egypt. There is a possibility that John is also concerned for his disciples as well. So you've announced this kingdom, and so it's not just about himself. And again, maybe again, we have to give that license to John, but Maybe what's going on in the background is that his disciples may not be safe themselves. As he makes this request about Jesus and about what will be protect, where this protection will come from God for those people who are obviously in need of a kingdom to protect them from, which is the old, or the, you can say the, the old Israel. When you look through his, the history of Israel, you get that picture that the Lord is very capable of setting up leaders who can swiftly turn around the oppression of his people. So again, this, maybe not, what's not on his mind as we know in the gospel is that long arc of justice that God has in view. But 
when you look at the Bible, when you look at where they stand in that time, they, they, they read the books of the judges. They read of, of how kings came like Saul and David. And they came up very, very quickly and addressed issues very, very quickly within their lifetime. And so in that sense, that worldview is very much like focused on, well, God has set up leaders to pretty much deal with the issues now. And so you have to understand as it were, that first century Jewish mindset, that maybe the justice that we see happening over hundreds and if not thousands of years is not in view. If God sets up a Gideon, we believe in that Gideon's going to deal with the present issue. So as I said, when you look at the books of Exodus and Judges um, and, the, and the books of the kings, that is 1 Samuel right through to, you can say even to 2 Chronicles, you get this picture of a God who is ready to, to help people in their present need. So in Jesus' view, this new Isianic Exodus that I believe that Luke... So one of the, the things about Luke's gospel is that he has Isaiah. It, it's believed that he has Isaiah as his, as his foundational text as he looks at Jesus. He's looking at the books of Isaiah and all the promises that Isaiah has, has made. And in some extent, what Luke is doing is looking at that scroll and saying, Jesus fulfills this. And so that sense, Isaiah becomes a blueprint for what Jesus is doing. So he's looking at Isaiah and he's looking at the text and saying, you know, and he's finding these accounts of how Jesus fulfills these things. And he's like saying, yes, that's in Isaiah too. And he's making and he's prioritizing those things which fulfill the text of Isaiah. So that's what I mean by the Isaianic Exodus, because Isaiah is the one who speaks so clearly about God's people moving on into this new covenant. You know, so he's looking at the Isaiah text and he's following that salvation picture that Isaiah gave to the people of Israel in his own time and calling for the nations and the, this new Israel that takes priority over the place of the judgment he also promised. So this new Israel takes priority over the judgment he has also promised. So in other words, this work cannot be fulfilled until God's salvation has been fulfilled. The judgment that needs to come can only come at the end of God's priority over the salvation. So a text that helps us with this is Isaiah 2. I want to read it because, again, it's helpful, because it gives you that vision of God's priority of salvation. And verse 2 says this, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 5. work and the delayed judgment can make us cry out Lord how long and we see that in the book of Revelation don't we when God's people are suffering they do cry out how long O Lord we see this in the Psalms as well how long O Lord but in that sense the Lord's priority is that salvation and to some extent we are grateful even to us sitting here today that the, the ark of God's salvation is long where would we have been had judgment come in the days of John the Baptist and God called everything to an end? 
we also know that the Lord's, the heart of the Lord is towards his mercy, triumphing over judgment. So again, that is a biblical text that the priority has to be that the, salvish, the, the salvific work of God, that salvation is more important, as it were, than the judgment. But the judgment, obviously, is not negligible. It is the end of the world, but not on the end of the world until God has called time. Our limited view of seeking relief from our own suffering needs to be submitted to the plan and the will of God in which we also have benefited from. So even as we might be saying how long in our time, we have to do it with the understanding that there are people that God also wants to bring into the kingdom of God. And that he, those are his priorities, even in the midst of our own suffering, as we pray for judgment. Maybe even the people that we think who are our enemies are those very people who God is waiting to bring into the kingdom. And when we look at, obviously, Luke's account, when we, you know, and, 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 and as he goes over into the book of Acts, we've got to think about people like Paul, people who are obviously very hostile to the gospel, even probably now, who will, again, eventually be one of its chief exponents. So time, obviously, is a great revealer of what God is doing. Jesus' reply to John is a reflection of how his ministry is linked to this messianic vision of Isaiah. In other words, the salvation aspect of Messiah, not the judgment as yet, which obviously John is looking for. And he, he's quoting, and what Jesus is showing to him is how in that particular time he was fulfilling Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. Let me read that to you because that's why when he, when he speaks about those miracles that he's doing, it's this he's actually reflecting. And he says this in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That's one. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. That's two. To proclaim liberty to the captives. That's three. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Again, three, four. It's the same thing. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, then the day of vengeance of God, to comfort all who mourn. In other words, that's that twofold that we see there. It moves in from that salvation to that point of judgment, so that the mourners and the vengeance of God comes. But it's that verse 1 that Jesus is focused on, to bring that salvation, to help bring people out of captivity, so he's stating to John that he is doing the work of the Messiah. So rather than saying, you know, so John is like, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? He says, I am doing the work of the Messiah. See what I'm doing. He's restating to John the facts. I am actually meeting the needs of the people and preaching the gospel to them. The added note of not being offended in Jesus is important to us all, as Jesus is not limited to our assumptions of him. Idolatry is setting up gods, um, you know. So idolatry is that setting up of gods that we believe are more reflective of what we believe God ought to be. You know, so our assumptions fill that space, that, that fill that void. When, in a sense, God, who we want to act in a particular way, doesn't meet those needs, we then set up a, a vision of God and a view of God that, 
ultimately we think is more real or more important to us, more significant to us. And that's idolatry. Whether you make a, a model of it or not, it's actually an idolatry where those assumptions now fill that void of what God we find unacceptable from God. And so our own standards now become the morals and the ethics of that God. That God now thinks and feels like us, and so really it's actually a reflection of our own heart. That idol is us projected into a new being. And this is what God wants to diminish and demolish in our lives so that we can have a true vision of him and worship him in spirit and in truth. So let's go to our next section, 24 to 30, please. So the next section, John now res Jesus now responds to um, his disciples now about who John is. And he says this, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send the messenger, my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, because, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So who is John? Though John may be in some, in some doubts about who Jesus is, Jesus is not in any doubts about who John is. Jesus starts by asking what John's appeal to the people was. He wasn't not a lightweight, a reed blowing in the wind, potentially a, a kind of an allusion to someone who just, a popularist, you know, as they say in, um, in modern terms, in politics. Someone who just kind of reflects the people's will. Someone who bends. Someone who has those fancy words and just, as it were, seems to have the pulse of the people. He says, nor was he, no, he was not nobility. In other words, they weren't going into the middle of the wilderness because he had the means to support them. He didn't have fine clothes. John's appeal was that he was acknowledged as a prophet. And that's what drew the people to him in the middle of nowhere. In other words, they knew that he had a message from God that they needed to hear, even if it would have been challenging to them. He had a message that they needed to listen to. As noted, John was calling people to be part of this new Israel by repenting of their sins, so the baptism of repentance. And through that baptism, it was for the purpose of fo they followed him into the wilderness in heeding his prophetic message. You know, as part of that new exodus, so to speak, we saw in Isaiah, we see, we now begin to see that the wilderness is reflected in Moses' leadership as well and the Israelites into the wilderness. In that, way, in that sense, that going out into the wilderness was that picture of 
Israel likewise going through the wilderness to emerge into a new land. And so that going into the wilderness was, in, in a sense, part of the aesthetic that God wanted to give, part of the picture that God wanted to give, that you are now the new Israel. No doubt there would have been plenty of good water supplies uh, nearer to Jerusalem, nearer to one of the main hubs that he could have gone to, but he takes them out into the wilderness, into this abandoned place, to give them this picture that this is something new that God is doing, and that the wilderness experience will be, as it were, that prelude to being in that kingdom. But John is not a mere prophet. But in fact, he's the greatest of them in relation to the fact that he is the forerunner of Jesus. In other words, he is now the prophet that hands over. When we think of that picture of, of a relay race, you know, normally the people will say that the, the most important one is that the one in the last leg who finishes the race, normally your fastest runner. And in that sense, John is the one just before that, the one who is going to finish the race. And in that sense, he's the one that runs the bend. He's the one that, in a sense, is, is going to hand over to Jesus. And so his significance is that he sets up that final leg of God's plan of salvation. And that's his greatness, just because he's in, in relation to where he is, to Jesus. He is the one who now points the way and says, that's it. This is where it all begins and ends. <clears throat> so anyway, he's also, you could say, a bridge. He is a bridge between two ages. He's the bridge because, in a sense, he's already preparing the people through baptism of repentance that Israel needs a new start. And that in that sense, he is now um, becoming a bridge to two, two worlds. And in a sense, in his greatness is also set up by the fact that he is the greatest of the old and also the beginning of the new, in which Jesus will obviously take the reins and run, obviously, for it. Run towards that goal of creating that new heaven and a new earth. Then we have that, that statement at the end by those who obviously had received the baptism of John. And they openly acknowledged John's message. And, you know, those who openly acknowledged John's message and were baptized by him now rejoice. They're grateful. They're saying, Jesus, they, you know, Jesus is now giving an endorsement on John's baptism that makes people go, I'm glad I responded to that. I know that it's, you know, because Jesus is pointing to that significance of, of John's role. And they proclaimed the justice of God. In that sense, they were probably maybe still being belittled to that day about, you know, you think, you know, the possibility, again, trying to create the culture of the time where maybe, again, these tax collectors and these other sinners that, again, Luke's gospel takes great pains to focus on. Maybe they were getting all these calls. Ah, so you had your baptism by John. Think you're all right, do you? Think you're right by God. Think you can bypass the temple system. Think you're... And all those kind of things that people say about you. To despise you, to make you feel like, yeah, yeah, you think you're all right now. And they're rejoicing because Jesus says, actually, that was the right thing to do. But the Pharisees, the lawyers, they're not rejoicing. 
Because, in a sense, Jesus, who is the prophet on the ascendancy here, has just endorsed them. And now they're thinking, nah, John's baptism wasn't anything. But Jesus gives them hope. Actually, you've now bypassed that temple system that was exploiting you, and you were right to do so. And now, you've found the righteousness that God has provided, aside from the old Israel, the old system. This is a new thing that God is doing, and they have found that way. Let's move on to that last section, 31 to 35. Read it again from the ESV. So Jesus makes his final statement, you know, in this section about um, himself and John. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute to you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Amen. So what's Jesus saying in this final section? So we got, one of the things you have to know, in, you know, when he says, what should I compare this generation to? You know, one of the things I learned, especially going through the book of, of, of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, is that this whole idea of the generation is not God speaking to a specific generation. You know, the generation of the time. It always means the generations that are around. He's talking about humanity as a whole. What should I compare to this generation to? In other words, there's no new thing under the sun. And that's what Ecclesiastes teaches us, is that this is relevant no matter what generation you're looking at. And so this whole idea, what should I compare this generation, is not a dismissal of saying, oh, Jesus is adding a criticism to this particular first century Palestine community. He's saying this is a problem in all generations. So don't miss that. This is the problem of our generation. What is wrong with this generation? Well, the people are disappointed. People find that his ministry, that is Jesus' ministry, has not really fulfilled their needs. In fact, what you get between John and Jesus is this broad scope of ministry. In other words, the way in which God reaches out to us is actually quite broad. There's this time to rejoice and this time to actually celebrate and enjoy the things that God has done. And this time also to knuckle down and get serious about the things that God has done with us. And he says even in that broad scope, people still find issues and feel, still find it not quite my cup of tea, as they like to say. There's no pleasing some people, isn't there? 
In other words, it can't appeal to the finicky attitudes of people. Finicky, that whole idea of like, you know, oh, you know, it's not quite right. Nothing, you know, nothing is quite right for them. In fact, the serious tone of John's ministry has no appeal to those he fought, who, who, who thought he was too moody. But what does that translate to us today? I don't like the church because it's too, it's, it's too moralistic. It has all these rules. It wants to tell me who I can, who, who, who I can be with. What I should do with it, you know, and it's, it's so behind the times. It's not modern, you know, I, I, you know it's, it's not quite where I need it to be. You know, I'd be a Christian if it were not but for the rules. And that's that moodiness, you know, Christians, you, you're not quite happy people, you're not enjoying life. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not with it. Fair enough. But the all-embracing ministry of Jesus has no appeal either to those he thought were t he was too liberal. Again, you know, there's people would approach him. What does this look like today? Well, it might look like those people who go, well, you know, the church is celebrating this victory and, you know, this whole idea that we're going to go to heaven one day and it's just not taking today's problem seriously. It's just not real about where we are at. And, you know, I'm not going to go in there and celebrate that how it's all going to be right when, when Jesus comes and all the rest of it. It's just not me. It's just not what I'm about. I mean, you know, I'm a bit more serious than that. And the church is not serious about meeting the needs and the justice of today. The idea I said behind this is that these people set the standard in which God must be embraced. And if John and Jesus do not measure up to them, then they are at fault. John and Jesus, they're the ones, there's a problem. They just don't get the post of the people. They just don't get the post of what is really happening. As they say, the customer is always right. The, the gospel is a mere thing that we purchase and invest in. The wise, however, are those who are able to see the truth of Jesus. Jesus' and John's ministry, and they run to it. Wisdom being justified of children also suggests that there is a time factor in this as well. Being justified of her children. It's that whole idea that it may not look like it right now, but wait and see. Those who look downtrodden and hopeless today, those who are on the fringes of society, those who, who, who otherwise people wouldn't accept because of your life and, and what you did before, will one day shine forth like the sons of God. And that's Luke's focus, isn't it? That justification will come with, wait and see what these people will be like once God has finished with them. Wait and see. You're overlooking them now. And you will even think that, well, you know, 
neither of these guys are the answer to the problems today, but there are people that are listening to the gospel. And they're responding to it. And they are being transformed and changed. What a blessing that is. So, what's our takeaway? What are you looking for in Jesus? Are you disappointed in him? Have you had the kind of week where you kind of think, oh, the gospel don't quite seem to meet that need. Maybe it's a high view of our own entitlement. And it's important to deal with that issue of entitlement, isn't it? Because so often we feel that my expectations ought to be met because in a sense they're so reasonable and so fair and so just. Especially as we relate to God and we question his goodness because in a sense we're so good that if God can't see the good, what will happen if he didn't do this, then who is he? There's a, there's a, there's a parable I love and I want to share it with you in relation to this whole idea of our own sense of entitlement. And it's the one about the hired servants. And I just want to go to the tail end of it. For those of you who know it, the whole idea is that a bunch of people are hired. Very much like how you might see today in, in um, how people pick up, um, people do pick up crops. They go, people sit on a corner, they come, um, the van comes around um, in the morning. Who wants to pick up crops? I need five people. They jump, you know, five people pop their hand out, you, 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 you. They jump in the van and then they take them to the thing. And then the farmer comes around later in the day and he finds more people there. I need a couple more people to drop the crops. And then he gets to the last hour where he comes around the corner and he picks up another group of people to work in his field. And so now everybody is in that frenzy of what's going to happen when it comes to payday at the end of the day, and they're all getting paid. And that's where I want to pick up and kind of read to you. So I'm in Matthew 20, and I'm reading from verse 10 to 16. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last workers only... only worked one hour, and they have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to these last workers as I give to you. As I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. And that, I, I love that parable because in a sense that so often we see reflected in those workers that sense of unfairness. That sense of, man, I'm entitled to more than that person. I've gone through beer struggles in life. And God owes me more. I'm doing the work. I bore the heat of the day. And you're giving this guy so much more. And that sense of disappointment in God. And really it's not actually God's unfairness. It's this whole idea that 
God wants to be as good to the last person he, he brings in or saves as he is to the first he saved. Like the thief on the cross. I want to be as good to him as the person that now lives a life 70 years in the faith. I want to give that to him as well. Is that me being bad? Or is that my generosity at display? And that's what Jesus is questioning about. Are you at issue? The issue is not my badness in, or unfairness to you. It's you actually don't like my generosity. Because what I've given to you is fear. Because it's what I agreed to give to you. And so, it's, so it is. It's a picture of salvation, isn't it? That first being last. In other words, they're treated just as well. And that's what Jesus, I guess, is pointing to John. I'm giving people the opportunity to come to the kingdom of God. The people that maybe you couldn't reach. The people that will respond to me because I am all-embracing. The people that live in the cities and will never go to the wilderness because they think that, that's not me. John's significance is that third, second point. You know, John was the very best of a last age, of that last age, but yet he's not greater than those chosen in the kingdom. And that's something we really need to celebrate. We are the greatest that God has done. We're at the pinnacle of salvation history. And do we appreciate that? You know? We are being prepared for a new exodus. This is the new exodus. This church, as we are banded, as we are, um, banded here today, is part of that new exodus. We're not meeting out in the middle of the wilderness. But maybe some churches around the world are meeting out in the middle of a wilderness. And that, no doubt, will have some significance for them. But we are part of that new exodus of the people being called out to come and be a part of the new people of God. And we're traveling in that exodus. And this is what reminds us as we gather today, Sunday to Sunday, midweek meeting to midweek meeting, are reminding ourselves that we are part of this new exodus that John began through that baptism of repentance, that new people of God. So John is significant because he reminds us that we are a people being set aside and being prepared for a new Israel. Are you dancing to your own tune? It's my third point. Are you looking for a gospel that is not too gracious or not too judgmental? You know, are you being picky? Are you kind of viewing the gospel the way that you believe the gospel should be? You know, as so many people say, I'm searching for the truth. But how are you searching for that truth? Because in a sense, it won't be within the scope of your own mind. But it will be how God has set it out for him. As Matthew 7, 13 to 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Which way are you trying to enter? In the broadness of your own mind? 
versus the narrowness of the gospel that has been presented to you, the one way. I say choose the narrow way. Choose the way that the gospel is presented to you as opposed to the broadness of what you believe the gospel ought to be. And you'll find that there is safety in there. Let me end on Isaiah 55, verses 6 to 9. I love this chapter. And again, it's part, I, I think, so much in the mind of Luke, even as he writes this gospel. He says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. See how important that section is? My ways not being your ways, giving God that room to be himself. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let us not despise the Lord because he is good. But let's um, live for the grace that he has given us, and also he wants to extend to others. So again, for you who may um, have not come to that decision of the Lord, again, there is room. Enter in. And for those who have, be gracious to those and be thankful that the Lord may not have come when you want him to come because he wants to be gracious to more. So we, as we continue to say, how long, O oh Lord, let us also say, Father, your way, not my way. Let his salvation work come to the end. And then we can say amen with him. Amen. amen. Lord, you are faithful in all your ways, and you're so gracious to us. Lord, the extension of your, 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 your period of grace has meant, dear Lord, Father, that the church here in the 21st century is here. And though so many had maybe had wished that judgment had come long ago, yet, Father, and even in our own time, we may come to a, a point where we wish judgment will come swifter. And, Lord, no doubt it will come. But Lord, in this time of grace, let us be sensitive to the fact that you want to save. You want to do a work amongst us, Lord God, and, and bring people to your kingdom. And Lord, even though we may question and say and be disappointed and say, Lord, you know, ah, you know, is Jesus really the one? Lord, you answer that and you remind us that you are doing your work amongst your people. And hopefully through us, through us as well that you are speaking to us in our need, in our, in our own situations, and also reaching out to others and encouraging us to reach out to others. And even now, Lord, let us reach out if we need help. Reach out to others and ask for, for that, that touch, that prayer, that forgiveness. So, Lord, have your way in us. We need you. And, Father, we are no doubt been found guilty of resenting your grace to others. Forgive us for doing so, Lord. And bring us again back into you. That place of safety where there's no bitterness, no pain, no sorrow. Have your way in us. In Jesus' name.
Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.